Yeah, Vaughn? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two twins and an album. And the return of Herb. I think people missed Herb in the last episode. I mean, I think the, I think the Q&A was, you know, enjoyable, but no Herb. He's back, baby. He's back and he's mad. Actually, he's not mad. No, I don't think Herb was ever mad. He Herb had the best life ever. You know, it is you know his coronet and a uh, bunch of hot chicks posing for his album covers. I mean, what else do you need? Whipped cream and other delights. Perhaps the greatest album cover of all time. T, you ready to talk about disappointment? I mean, normally we're we're so optimistic on the podcast. We're very. <laughs> T, wake up! Wake up! Get up, T! Get up, T! Oh, but oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Whoa, jeez, I. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I'll tell you something. I. Uh... I've been listening to Kid A all week, and that's kind of what happens, I think, after a few spins of this one. You've been listening to way too much Kid A. Oh, a little sleepy. There's overused words in the English lexicon. We probably use the word disappointed often for a cover for words like, you know, mad and upset. You know, you might say, you know, you, you, you and I both have, you know, relatively young kids at this point, and they might act up or something, you might say something like, I'm disappointed in you guys, but really you're, you're kind of pissed off, right? There's a, there's a fine line, you know, I mean, you gotta, you gotta figure out what's going to be more effective to say, I'm angry and like yell or to just kind of do the, you know, you really disappointed me today. That's right. Cause both can be equally as painful when you're on the other side of it. I would know that all too well, buddy. It's a real thing to be disappointed. And tonight's album is a reflection of disappointment. But like all things Two Twins in an album, I mean, let's check and see what this uh, album looks like several years later. And let's really look at, was it disappointing or, you know, did time do justice to this particular album? And I, I think it's important to say we've got our synthesizers out tonight. We've, uh, we've gotten them out. and. Uh, That's it. That's track four on Kid A. <laughs> was that a cover of track four on Kid A? It was the exact composition. So, you know, a, a, lot, to, a lot to get into, a lot of synth to, uh, to play. We're going to jam today uh, on, on this episode. Is that what you're saying? Episode 32. We might have a little bit of a jam on episode 32. But before we jam, it's only fitting that we do what we always do, which is to begin with what each other has spinning round and round let's do it t what is round and round for you 
Well, the first one, Nubs, is a soundtrack. Can we do that? Can we go soundtrack? Let me check with the judges. Uh, yes, that is okay. approved. Yes. Thank you. Uh, this one's got a couple of tracks by Vince DeCola. Uh, you got some Survivor. I'm talking about a little movie that symbolized and metaphored the Cold War about as shamelessly and blatant as a propaganda film, which it essentially was Rocky Four, The fight in Moscow on Christmas Day for no reason at all. Even when they asked Rocky why Christmas, he, he said, that's what I was told, whatever that means. Yasivya, Yasivya, Yasivya. And I'll just leave it there because otherwise I'll go on for an hour with Rocky Four stuff. I've been listening to that soundtrack. I love the Vince DiCola tracks. I actually think that war and the training montage are both fabulous compositions. You know, really like them. The second is by a Steely Dan Records. This is Gaucho. Great record by those guys. Sometimes it's hard to take your pick. And the third is by a fella we talked about on the Huey Lewis uh, episode who is a bit of a ripoff artist, but got me thinking, I need to listen to The Other Woman a little bit, that, that great record by Ray Parker Jr., which has the title track as well as Street Love. Great I'm song. convinced that The Other Woman and Street Love are just the same song with two different lyrics. Yeah, that's right. I mean, same exact, pretty much everything. So can Ray Parker Jr. sue, he got sued by Huey Lewis, can he sue himself <laughs> right, yeah. for ripping off the other woman with street love his own song i mean i don't know maybe he could if anyone wants to check out you know saying the greatest soul train clip of all time is uh it's a big statement but if you want to see a true quality soul train clip check out ray parker jr performing the other woman and street love on soul train yeah with a with a fabulous interview by don cornelius after the song as only cornelius could oh Don Cornelius interviews, the greatest, just so awkward, so awkward. He like, I don't know, I guess that was part of the charm, but he was a, just a horrendous interviewer, but <laughs> lo and behold, he'd do that any, you know, he'd do that kind of slow walk up to the artist, you know, after they got done lip syncing, you know, and, uh, the best too, I loved lip syncing back in that day because they didn't, you know, people just didn't give a shit. They'd be up there playing the song and it would start to fade out. And the guys would just, the musicians would just stop and the song would keep going as it was fading. But they were like, whatever, we're done. You know? Yeah. You, like, <laughs> you kind of stop pretending. It's like, all right, we're, we're good here. You get the fade out and then the slow Cornelius walk and then just yeah. the most uncomfortable interview ever. Yeah. He just kind of lurks over and it's like, oh man, it's a little bit of a trait. You know, you want it to happen, uh, but you also don't. But uh, ah, Soul Train, beautiful. So that's what's running around for me. What do you got, buddy? I've got the album Alien from Strapping Young Lad. T, do you know? I mean, it's one of your, it's a guy you really like, but who led the band Strapping Young Lad? Are you, are you familiar? That's the Devin Townsend deal. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was Devin Townsend. Not the Devin Townsend project, not the Devin Townsend band and not Devin Townsend, but you know, I suppose his fourth project. Correct. And not, not to be confused with Vi either, which Devin Townsend was the lead vocalist for as well. Sex and religion. Yep. That's right. So yes, this is the album Alien from 2005. A lot of people consider this to be Strapping's best album. This is Devin Townsend kind of at his death metal 
thing and alien is a fantastic record and really out of the box and worth checking out second would be you know maybe another sort of secondary project for a pretty popular artist and that is blackfield which is one of the side projects for steven wilson who just released a new album this is steven wilson and aviv geffen the israeli artist the debut album and it's pretty good songwriting it's not something that you know is super challenging especially for steven wilson uh the the temperature you might take for him but for the most part it's solid songwriting and a nice blend of uh him and aviv geffen's vocals and then lastly would be T the Jimmy Chamberlain Complex. So this is hmm. the drummer from Smashing Pumpkins. Sure, great drummer. Exactly. So during his hiatus from the Pumpkins, he created his own group and it was a little bit more of a fusion type of deal. Some jazz influences. The Parable is the album that I've been digging. This is from uh, 2017. This is almost straight jazz, but it's Jimmy Chamberlain really at his sort of drumming zenith, right? Like you can really hear him showing his chops. I know you're a pretty big Chamberlain fan, right? As a drummer. I just thought he had really, you know, good touch and, and quick hands. And, you know, I know the pumpkins are sort of back together in their original form sans crazy Darcy, but, um, which is nice. I think they're much better with him. And those, those years where, you know, Corgan was still putting out some pretty decent compositions, but without Jimmy, there was just something a little bit different. I think it's a, a another, solid example of a drummer being pretty important because when he was there they sounded like the pumpkins and when he wasn't it sounded like billy corgan solo right so yeah i agree with you so yeah i've been digging that i don't know if you checked it out but his uh his work with the complex is uh pretty interesting stuff so that is what is round and round t ready to be disappointed yeah i think i'm ready i think i'm ready i mean uh it's not a very good question to receive. Um, I'd rather you say, are you ready to be um, massaged or are you ready to be, um, you know, fed with yummy cake? Um, are you, <laughs> are you ready, ready to be given a three hour nap? Something like that. <sighs> yeah, I guess you already are. T, wake up. T. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yep. yep. Get up. Yep. I'm good. I'm up. I'm up. Yep. Sorry. Much yeah, kid, eh? I mean, look, let's be honest. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm talking a lot about disappointment and we'll get to more of that in the wonder stories. But the, the reality is, you know, part of two twins in an album and part of retrospect is let's revisit this. Let's see, you know, because I, I certainly revisiting this album with an open mind. I mean, I know what the feeling was when it first came out, but you know, let's rediscover Let's have a fresh open mind on the topic and let's see what this album really is and, and really what it meant. Right. I mean, that's kind of, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think it's, it's a great pick for that reason because Hey, sometimes, and we've all had it where you go back and you give something a, uh, a second crack and sometimes you actually end up appreciating it or liking it something that you didn't understand before or disliked before. I, I can assure you that I uh, revisited this with a wide open mind and uh, I trust that you did too. And looking forward to, to discussing this one. For sure. And, and you know, I, I tell you, we were not keen on this, but 
what we were both keen on without question was 1997's OK Computer. So I just want to start with getting your take on that record. I mean, like all things that are important, and clearly I think we can all agree that OK Computer was a very important album in the 1990s. Maybe Retrospect has overblown it. Maybe it's been underplayed, right, with time because it's a whole new audience in 2021 than it was in 1997, of course. But just share your your experiences with OK Computer. You know what what do you recall about the your early experiences with the album and how has it aged for you over time? Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up. I mean, it, it is kind of important as far as the context of. I suppose they're they're really the progression of their first four albums, of which obviously OK Computer was the third. And I mean, yeah, I was a huge fan. You know, I mean, it's one of those records you you pop it in and you hear the intro to Airbag, and it's like, hoo hoo, here we go, right? It was I loved it because I mean, I was a huge fan of the Bends, right? And I mean, I still to this day, if I had to take one of their albums with me and take it on an island, it would be the Benz pretty easily. But this was a really nice evolution and experimentation without getting too far away from kind of how they started. And how they started was a, you know, kind of a, a, a sludgy, spacey, you know, British rock band. So OK Computer was this like very experimental, but very balanced outputting that was creative you know, layered and really interesting from an instrumentation standpoint without overdoing it and without pushing the boundary too far and without getting away from what you are at your core, you know? And I mean, Paranoid Android was a kind of a masterpiece, right? I mean, that was a six and a half minute song that, you know, was regularly on MTV with that unique, you know, kind of cartoony, crazy video. It was played in full on the radio, you know, appropriately so. And I mean, the, you know, the front half of that record's just insane. You know, I mean, Subterranean Homesick Alien might be my favorite Radiohead song of all time. And I mean, Karma Police, just a giant hit and Let Down is incredible. You know, so I mean, in the back half, you, you know, did trails off a little, but yeah, I thought that was a really special, unique record. And clearly part of the thinking must've been that they didn't push the boundary far enough, but I thought it was really, really good. And, and I, I assume that you were um, a big fan of uh, Pablo Honey, I'm not sure of. I, I'm, you know, I didn't love that one. But their second album and third album, I, I think you think pretty highly of as well, yeah? Yeah, I thought The Benz was really good. It, it was uh, Pablo Honey, I, I still think is a crappy album. I, yeah. It, it really is. And I never connected with Creep, you know, never quite understood sort of the, you know, the enamorment with that song. It was, it was just kind of different, you know, it was like the, you know, like was just something that like you'd never heard before it, you know, creep did kind of capture the moment uh, lyrically and this sort of like poor me dreadful, you know, I mean, I, I could see, you know, shoot, we were, how old were we when that song came out? Like 13 probably. Right. So we were right in the sweet spot for it. So you can see why that one caught on and was huge. But in hindsight, I really don't think that song aged too well. Agreed. And uh, the, the Benz certainly improved drastically on Pablo Honey and the, the opener Planet Telex was always oh, a favorite. Yeah. And 
there was there was a lot of things on the bends that kind of got you really interested in Radiohead. But by the time OK Computer came out in 97, it, it was the undisputed masterpiece. I remember just in terms of where we were at last week in the Q&A episode, we talked about, you know, what year would you want to live in musically if you had to choose one? And I said 1997 and OK Computer is a gigantic part of that without question. And so OK Computer is certainly an album that has its place and should have its place. The follow-up was always going to be this really important thing, you know, because there was so much anticipation. And in the 90s, with the way the music industry was going, you know, if you had a great album, it was all about what was going to come next. And so Kid A, tonight's album, came with a, a certain amount of sort of obsessive anticipation. You know, this was one of those that everyone was really looking forward to seeing how do you follow such a classic? Because I think OK Computer it was very obvious that that album was going to be a classic, you know, when it came yeah, out. Yeah, and it, and it deserved to be. For sure. Yeah. And so there, there was just, you know, an incredible, like, forward looking sense to what was going to come of Kid A. All music fans were really looking forward to its release. And, and it immediately polarized just about everybody who bought it and everybody who heard it. And we'll get into that. So let's get into that next with the nerdy deets about Kid A done dirt cheap. You want some dirty deets? Yeah. You want some dirty deets? All right. So Kid A was released on October 2nd of 2000. It was recorded over a relatively long period of time, a couple of years for the band. Again, on the heels of this classic and very beloved album, Radiohead did decide to work with Nigel Goodrich again you know, smart producer pick. He produced OK Computer. I think Nigel Goodrich is a huge part of the Radiohead story. And, you know, he's kind of a guy that comes along and brings out the, the raw creativity in certain bands. I know, like, for example, the best album that Paul McCartney has made in the last, I mean, you might say even 15, 20 years was Chaos and Creation in the Backyard. And that's all because of Nigel Goodrich. You know, he worked directly with Sir Paul and kind of brought out the the innovative sense in that. So they did decide to stay with the same producer, which I think is a significant factor. Now, like I said, it really polarized audiences, but those who loved it went on to think it was something really, really magnificent. Rolling Stone Magazine, in hindsight, has ranked it number 20 on the 500 greatest albums of all time. <laughs> There, I love these hindsight things. things too, because I mean, there have been some records that got just destroyed and then they go back like 20 years later and it's like, well, you know, I guess it was pretty good. You know, we gave it a star and a half, but we're going to upgrade that to four, you know, and it's like, geez, I mean, so stupid, but it, it, it's a truly bizarre ranking for an yeah. album, you know, like today, but you know, pitchfork and the times they both rank it as the greatest album of the 2000s. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it won the Grammy Award for Best Alternative Album. It was, you know, it, it sold very, very well. So it, it's got an interesting place in music in the sense that it was quite successful in, in sales and certainly in critical acclaim, yet it never did and never will reach, you know, sort of the heights of OK Computer in terms of, how it will last and how it will be seen in retrospect. But if you look at the accolades for this album, and it's a very, very long list from a lot of reputable publications over time. And like I said, it, it charted very well uh, in the U S billboard charts. It hit number one. 
It hit number one in the UK album charts. A couple other countries, it hit number one. We'll get into it in the Wonder Stories, but this was not an album where a lot of music was released, but the hype was there. And so, you know, Kid A came out to a hungry audience and uh, I think an audience that would go on to be quite surprised. Radiohead continued to be made up of, you know, five very forward-thinking and innovative artists, but certainly the two leaders of the group, you might say, are Tom York, you know, the vocalist and guitarist and other stuff, and Johnny Greenwood, who would really emerge as the visionary behind the group on guitars and noises and all sorts of things like that. We'll get into it, but, you know, there's also a pretty, (laughs) I would say, underutilized member of Radiohead on this album. And uh, that would be drummer Philip Selway, who's a guy that you can't hear very much on this album, but there are live drums on this album. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, are there, I I didn't hear, but not a whole lot, a couple, a couple tracks. Yeah. Colin Greenwood on bass guitar and Ed O'Brien is the other guitarist. So like T mentioned, this is the fourth album amnesiac would follow pretty closely after. In fact, the two are kind of seen as, you know, sort of a pair of albums because amnesiac would follow in 2001. So in same sessions, I think, right? Didn't uh wasn't Amnesiac uh made up of a lot of the sort of leftovers from Kid A sessions? Yeah, it's a it, great point. A lot of them came from the same sessions. I don't know how much they were apt to say they were leftovers, but Amnesiac, if you can believe it, is almost like the less commercial outtakes from Kid A. You know, which is hard to believe because there's nothing about Kid A that's commercial. And let's get to that. Let's let's dive into how we both experience Kid A as we get into the wondrous stories. All right, T. So I, we were juniors in college in October of 2000, although you did, you know, victory lap. So I don't know how you consider your third year, but... <laughs> I, I'm I consider, guessing. but what I mostly consider is that I didn't stay there long enough. <laughs> right, exactly. But I have this vision that might be similar to mine where you probably went into a record store in Lawrence, Kansas and bought this and then took it home and listened to it. So tell me if that's accurate or if there's another side of the So I actually story. didn't. I've never purchased Kid A. And, uh, I was definitely listening to a lot of, you know, new music and a lot of my favorite bands. I mean, I remember when uh, World Coming Down came out, you know, when I was in college and Typo Negative and, you know, I used to go to the uh, record store quite a bit, but um, I think somebody got to me early and said, hey, the new Radiohead record is like really weird. And I don't know if I like it and all this. And so I paused a little bit. I was like, well, I want to hear this first. And eventually, not too long after it came out, you know, somebody had a copy and was able to hear it. And, you know, obviously it was very, uh, at the time, you know, now you look back at Radiohead's catalog and it's like, well, yeah, I mean, you know that they, they went pretty avant-garde at times and they got pretty experimental at times, but you know, this was a whole different level. Right. And the aforementioned OK Computer, 
you know, still had some kind of bare bones to it, right? And it was mostly, you know, guitar bass and drum driven. And there were some more effects and some more layering that um, sort of didn't exist on their first two records, but it was still pretty core to who they are. And then uh, this record was just a complete departure, you know? And to your point, there were a lot of people that really didn't like it and didn't get it. And you could put me in that category. And there were a few people that just freaking loved it, thought it was brilliant, you know, and I never really understood it. And I was kind of like, what am I missing here? You know, and and it's kind of funny. It's one of those, it's a very unique record for me because I would say every like five years since I've kind of said, you know, there are a lot of people where I really respect their musical taste that just thought this was absolute genius record. I'm going to go back and give it another spin and just see what I missed. Right. And, and that's part of the fun of, of, of music and of records that sometimes you don't like is you go back and like we said, from the onset, give it another spin. And it's like, Oh, I I missed it. You know, now I understand every time I've revisited this, I've kind of come away with the same reaction. So, uh, I guess we'll, you know, we'll wait till the end to kind of give our current thoughts, you know, give you a little something to stay tuned in for. We don't want to, we don't want to spoil the party here, but, um, yeah, I didn't get it. There were a lot of people that did. And I was constantly kind of wondering what the deal was. But like I said, I love the bends. You know, I still listen. I mean, Sulk is a top Radiohead song and Planet Talks, as you mentioned, just outstanding. I mean, these guys really have some great stuff. Um, and then I remember when they put out that free album. I mean, you, you got to hand it to Radiohead for always pushing the envelope. They, they put out that In Rainbows record, which was download only and free. And at the time, that was like, whoa. I mean, that was a whole new thing. So the the good thing about Radiohead is the way they were always innovative musically. Um, but sometimes they pushed it too hard and they pushed it too far. And um, But I guess that was always what they were going for. It's sort of when it's too far, too far and letting their fans and letting, you know, uh, fellow artists and music connoisseurs figure that out. And, um, and you know, we'll... We'll see when we dig back through it here on the old episode, on the old podcast here, if uh, we think it's legit or not. But those are kind of my recollections on Kid A. And you were also in college at the Ohio State University who who just won a big, if Dub sounds like he's in a good mood, they won a really, really big basketball game here uh, before we started. So congrats and OH and uh, tell me about Kid A. I O and yes, uh, it was a great win. and. My my friend Oliver, who we've mentioned, he was my college roommate. We liked a lot of the same music, and we could not wait for October 2nd, 2000. And this was just going to be a big day. It was the follow-up to OK Computer. So we went to, Columbus was a great record store town. It was an awesome place to go to school. Uh, but musically, it was a fabulous setting. You know, great record shops and good live concert venues and kind of gave you everything you needed. So we went up and purchased it on CD. And I remember going back to our apartment and putting it in and like almost thinking something was like wrong with my CD, player, <laughs> you know, cause it was just like, there's like no drums on it and there's seemingly no melody and I don't really hear any songs. And just, I remember the night it came out listening to it three times, top to bottom just wanting so badly for there to be anything on there redeeming. And 
buying it is still a memory and it's still a positive memory because it does take you back to a time where you really looked forward to a release. You know, you really couldn't wait to get there and buy it and and take the shrink wrap off and putting your player and, and listen to it. So in that sense, it's a cool memory because it takes you back to that time where physical media was such an important part of the music experience. But, you know, in the end, I, I just remember listening to it over and over again, just thinking, what in the hell is this? And trying to figure out where this album was going to fit because they had achieved not just, you know, we talked about OK Computer as a creative piece, but it also was a tremendously successful commercial. Oh, yeah endeavor you know I mean, which just ton of tortured this band i mean you know we've talked a few times in past episodes about you know the the whining about success move and boy did these guys do that i mean after okay computer which was you know it was super commercially successful to your point and really critically acclaimed they just were tortured it was like all melody is bad and you know, we got to do something completely different and now we're being lumped into a scene and you know, all this, and this is where, you know, artists, whether they're musicians or others just get on your nerves, but they, they became embarrassed with themselves. And that was a big reason for the pivot toward, you know, this kid, a material. And now you remember this too. I mean, we went to the, show in Detroit on the OK Computer Tour. They played the State Theater in Detroit. It was a great show. But I don't know if you remember this, T, because you ended up, you know, you went to Kansas and then you lived, spent some time in New York City. But that show was the end of them playing live gigs in Detroit for like 15 years. And the reason why is because they didn't like that the crowd moshed to the music (laughs) and they didn't like like the kind of rock star energy of a detroit crowd they thought it was too like oh like we're pop stars now so they literally stopped coming to detroit because detroit like moshed to radiohead and it's like okay guys you know that's it's detroit like it's you know i mean know where you are and don't take it out on an entire area because one audience didn't act the way you wanted them to act. And they literally did not play another show in Detroit for many years. And I remember that that show was really good. I mean, they played a lot of great OK computer stuff. They did some nice renditions of the Benz, but in hindsight, you look back and, oh, the band like went away from that and said, oh, we hated that experience. And we didn't like being treated that way by the audience. And it it, kind of just gets into the pretentiousness of the whole thing. And, you know, Brian Eno is like, one of my heroes, you know, I listen to cluster. I listen to tangerine dream. I love synthesizer music. I love space music. And one of the things what we'll talk about here is I think radio had, you know, they weren't being quite as innovative as they thought they were being. I mean, others have done this before, but they didn't do it in 1997 or 2000 on the heels of such great success. So I, I think this album will always be one of the great examples of a shocking moment more than anything else. But I think we'll get into that when we uh, go track by track. So you ready? You know what? I just remembered why I never bought this album. Okay. Why now I, it? now I remember. Okay. It starts with an N and ends with an R. Starts with an N and ends with an R. Starts with an N. I'm going to guess that you are talking R. about Napster. 
Napster. Yeah, you got it. I mean, that's probably why I never bought it. I brought, and this was one of those, actually, this was kind of an issue at the time where, you know, these tracks started leaking out on Napster and soon, you know, before you know it, a couple weeks before the release, you could download the whole album and we'd get that 56 K modem going all night and download a nice batch of songs. You know, that was, that was kind of what we started to do at that time. But uh, yeah, that's probably why I never purchased the thing. Oops. About 25 minutes per song, something like that over the old uh, phone dial up. Yeah. Board. And the 56 K that's probably about <laughs> the right. 56 K. Yep. Exactly. Well, T, T, let's get into the track by track. So the first track, here we go. Let's run it. Tonight, good. we're going to make Kid A music. That will be on the Rolling Stone list. Revised <laughs> Rolling Stone list in about 20 years. Are you ready to go track by track and make a little Kid A music? Because listen, the rea- you and I can make this album. I mean, we can. You know, with the exception of a couple moments. I mean, let's... Well, we did it. We got the synthesizers out tonight, guys. We got them out. All right, T, let's uh, <laughs> let's go track by track. Let's dig into Kid A. All right, so all comedy aside, and we'll put that away for a second because Kid A actually begins with my favorite song on the album and a song that I actually truly really love. And that is everything in its right place. So I, I really do love everything in its right place. And when I first heard the album, I remember listening to the opening track and saying, oh, cool. Like, what a nice intro. <laughs> like, the, I wonder where it's going to go next. But there yeah. is something about that thumping backbeat. And Tom is singing a, a pretty sweet melody on top of this, you know, rather vintage sort of you know, pulsating synth thing. And I, I, I do think this song really works. now. Little did I know that the rest of the album was just sort of going to be this in a bunch of different forms. But at the time, I thought, wow, what a cool intro. What a cool way to introduce the album. But what do you think of the opening track, T? Yeah, that's that's fair. I mean, I think it's, uh, I don't think you realize what you were getting yourself into until the next one. Because this just sounded kind of cool, pretty digestible. And yeah, to your point, as a track one you almost thought like you were just being sort of introduced to the thing. Um, 
you know, I guess if you, if you, if you don't really love this record, I, I suppose I could call it one of the more tolerable songs in that it does have direction. It does have some semblance of uh, musicality and beat and sort of melody. There's not a lot of that to go around on this, on this record. If you are into melody uh, or at least an attempt at it. So yeah, I think you got it right. I think it's a, it's a, really good way to start the record whether you kind of like what happens afterwards or not i think it's a very appropriate track one when you get old like us you forget moments of you know being in your 20s but i vividly remember the first listen just thinking oh at some point the song has to open up and the drums have to come in and it has to be loud and crashing and and think about that i, I thought about this every time i listened to it since this song would have been so cool if like halfway through you had a big drum beat coming a two and, yeah. and do something big, you know, big guitars and maybe Johnny Greenwood is strumming big with distortion. I mean, that would have been mm-hmm. a really cool use of dynamics. The song never does that. And I remember by the end thinking, okay, I like that, but it didn't really go in a way that it could have gone. And to your point, that totally sets up what's to come next. And what's to come next is one of the most famous song twos in my listening experience, because it was the moment where I thought, oh, crap, this is sort of what it is. And that is the title track, which is Kid A. What do you say about Kid A? I mean, it even in retrospect, it's like, where is this going? And yeah, you you imitated it well. That's sort of this muffled vocal, you know, or just over the top of this sort of directionless synth pulse. I mean, it was this just T was Kid A just like a big F you to all of us who like this band because they wrote great songs? Is that what it was? Come on, man. It's ambient. It's ambient. Don't you get it? <laughs> Come on, man. Yeah, I think so. I think it was a a definite. Uh, it's a good. It's a good point. I think it was a signal, you know, of track two, title track, and here you go. You know, this was definitely the moment where it was like, okay, everybody. In case you didn't know, we're doing things a little differently this time. So. Come along for the ride if you choose to. And if you don't, that's perfectly fine as well. I mean, that's that's what's going on here with the track placement, with the title track nature. And it's a pretty stupid song, you know, and it goes on forever. Did you at any point flip through this one? I did. <laughs> we finally get a little bit of drums, finally-ish, if you will, when it comes to track three. A great example of a... <laughs> 
a promising riff that goes absolutely nowhere, and that is the national anthem. I remember hearing the beginning and thinking, okay, now they're going to make a song, right? Like, okay, good. Bass riff. And the riff just remains super repetitive, which is fine, right? Like, like I said, like Kraut Rock, like got it, you know, repetition, cool, can, lovely. But then it just does nothing, you know? And then I, the little saxophone solo thing at the end is kind of cool. Like, okay, creative, interesting, but. It's like how to ruin a good riff, you know? The thing that cracks me up about Kid A is like the people who, you know, were way into it, right? Had like two or three songs on here where they were just like, they were so blown away by it. And you like sit there and listen to it with them and you like watch them. And it's like, boy, do I wish I I had the the chip in my brain that you have in yours because I am just not getting this whatsoever. And you are like, you are in heaven, man. Like you think this is and national anthem was one of those, you know, it was kind of like, it was one of the standout tracks for a lot of people. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's okay. Um, Humphreys McGee covers this song, which is always kind of interesting because for the most part, you know, I'm batting about eight fifty with those guys as far as the, the covers that they choose. Cause you know, we have a lot of mutual appreciation. I know you do too with those guys. And the fact that they play this song is pretty indicative that they think very highly of it, as do a lot of other Kid A fans. I mean, I just think it's kind of okay. Somewhat atmospheric. It's got a little bit of groove to it. To your point, one of my gripes about this record is everything stays pretty flat. You know, there's a lot of effect, a lot of layering, but not a lot of dynamic. And this is a perfect example of that kind of, even during the sax solo, it's like the same thing with just this like crazy, I suppose, sort of King Crimson-ish crazy sax piece going on over it. But that's part of my issue with a song like this and really with most of this record is just it's the dynamics just aren't quite there. I think that's an outstanding take, T. And think about it again in relation to OK Computer. I mean, what was one of the magical keys to OK Computer was dynamics. Yeah, completely. Paranoid Android? Yeah. It, it's a great prog rock anthem, but really the key to that song is dynamics. Loud, quiet, loud, quiet, loud, quiet. Totally. Let Down is a terrific example. So good. Airbag, Subterranean, even Karma Police takes you on some highs and lows and some ebbs and flows, right? And that's probably one of the flatter songs on OK Computer. So. There was no desire to be catchy here by any means. And that certainly continues with track four, which is how to disappear completely. I'm not So it's sort of like, this is like your whiny Tom York ballad, if you will. But unlike fake plastic trees off of the bends, which kind of takes off and becomes this majestic feel, this remains in that pocket, as you mentioned. It just never really 
kicks off in those dynamic ways. But, you know, to your point, those who love Kid A probably see this as some sort of, you know, Tom York vocal, you know, masterwork. And, and I don't know. I just don't see it that way. Yeah. If you're like, uh, like making out with your college girlfriend on the shag carpet, you know, or the piece of shit couch or something, um, I, I guess I could understand this one. But uh, I think it sucks. I think it's really boring. And, you know, I know they're trying to create atmosphere, but, you know, I think it's boring. Well, I, I wouldn't say the uh, lack of boringness uh, seeds here. So let's go on to track five as we move along, Kitty, here, which is, uh oh, T's falling asleep again. Hang on. Hey, T. T. Tay. Tay. Whoa. Gee, whoa. Hey. No, I'm good. Hey. Hey, I'm up. I'm I'm up. I'm good. I'm good. You've fallen asleep again. <sighs> Boy. Wow. Sound is really putting you out here. That track four. Man, I'll tell you what. It's a doozy. <laughs> Let's see what track five does. Tree fingers. That's about what it does. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. I bet you that 90% of our listeners cannot tell the difference between tree fingers and what we just played to. Oh, hundred percent. So again, you know, I, I, I really do want to, I, I think Radiohead thought they were doing something really innovative and I, you know, at the risk of sounding a bit music snobby, it's really not. I mean, this has been done before and by the way, it's been done better and it's been done with a higher skill level because you know, these bands that we referenced from the past, they were working with, you know, vintage analog synthesizers. So it, it's like Radiohead, what you're doing here is actually not really that cool. It's certainly not as cool as you think it is. Yeah. And I, and I think that's where it gets down to the intent a little bit, because, you know, listen, being avant-garde, being experimental, these are all good things. I, I'm really hoping we don't sound like a couple of geezers here, right? I mean, it, it, you're a prog guy. You can appreciate getting outside the box, pushing the boundaries as well as anybody. And, you know, when bands evolve and bands expand, that's great. That's art. You know, that's what, that's what it's all about. But what is your intention? And I think part of what makes this album difficult for some people, self-included, is that the intention was so blatantly to be rebellious, to be off-putting, to be different, and to sort of spook people that um, sometimes it can, that the art can come across as ingenuine or calculated or overly intentional. And, you know, when you get to moments like this on the album, it becomes pretty clear. They just kind of want you to you know, be cognizant of the fact that this is different more so than just listening to something and reacting and feeling based on that experimentation or even based on that 
sort of evolution nature of an artist or a band, which can be a beautiful thing. But when it's done in genuinely and for the wrong reasons, I, I really think it could affect the content and affect the art and certainly affect the way you uh, absorb it. There were no singles on Kid A. And, you know, one might think that that was intentional as a way to stay cool or, you know, try and keep it about the, about the album or whatever the band might have been trying to intend to do. But the reality is you look back and it's like, there are no singles on this album. There's nothing even close to resembling a hit single except for track six. And this is the one moment where you think, you know what, this band could still write a song, even though it doesn't reach maybe where it should reach. Optimistic is an important song on the album. So let's roll that. Track six, Optimistic. So I really do like Optimistic. And this is one of the two tracks on the album that kind of show an intention to do something that's just a little bit connectable. And uh, I think it was much better recreated. It's, I don't know how much you like some of the albums that came out after Kid A, but I think Hail to the Thief is a very strong Radiohead yeah, album. There's a too. song on there called Go... Excellent. Yeah, there's a song on there called Go to Sleep. Mm-hmm. That is one of my favorite Radiohead songs. And, and Optimistic is almost like, you know, the prelude to Go to Sleep. I, I think what they do there is a more successful version of Optimistic. But you can see where it's going. I remember at first listen, I, I was thinking, okay, here we go. The song never quite elevates to the level, but there are some things here that open up and you do hear some drums and there's some guitars and it, it's a little more conventional of a track. What do you think, Optimist? It's, it's easily the best song. And that's not because it's the poppiest or it's because it's the most commercial by any means, but it's because it's the least uh, calculated, you know, they're kind of jamming. You can tell that they're kind of playing, right? It's, I think it's the most, you know, freeing song on the record where it kind of, dare I say, it sounds like they're maybe having fun. Uh, I know, you know, last thing they wanted to do at this point is have any fun, but it, it feels like an optimistic that you could see heads bobbing in the studio. You could see guys, you know, grooving a little bit, jamming a little bit, getting some feeling getting some fricking emotion up in this bitch. Right. And, um, and that's what I like about it. You know, it, it sounds like a band. It sounds like a band. This sounds like it could have been a jam session, you know, that sort of evolved into a song. So it's not that it's like musically so superior or that it's like commercially superior or any of those type of things necessarily. It's that it sounds like a band that's not trying too hard to be unique or trying too hard to surprise you. It's a band trying to put together a nice song with some good rhythms, some good, dare I say it, melody, some good layers and some good feeling. And, uh, and I like optimistic. I wish more tracks on the album were like track six. Well, it is aptly named and we're both optimistic on optimistic, but then that just <laughs> goes right away with track seven. <laughs> in limbo.
cue the odd vocal treatment right there near the end of the clip, Maestro. So you, you, you get a little bit of a sensibility and optimistic, and then you just go right back into a sort of song that winds into the, the unknown and the directionless within Limbo, right? Uh, I was going to use that exact same word, great call, directionless, you know. And uh, be spacey, be avant-garde, but be thoughtful. I mean, all I, you know, everyone has different reasons for listening to music and absorbing art. I mean, all I care about is that you're remotely thoughtful. It can be terrible. It can, you can lack talent. In some cases, you can even lack structure and, you know, emotion and all these type of things. I mean, you you can't hit every mark, but at least be thoughtful, put some thought into what you're putting out there. And I just think this is uh, messy and I can't really connect with directionally what they were trying to do here. All right. See, I've got a, (laughs) what I think is a pretty funny story about track eight, which you were not in college in the uh, early 2000s. If you never heard this song blaring out of an apartment complex or a dorm room. And that is (laughs) right. Yeah. And that is Idiotech. Oh my God, so many college flashbacks. You're so right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So that one I wish you could fall asleep during. That's like the song that that's like the song yeah, that keeps you yeah. awake. So Mrs. Nubs is not a um I, I would I would call her a pretty mainstream music fan. You know, she kind of likes big blockbuster tours and, you know, Taylor Swift kind of Britney Spears, kind of those sort of things. And uh, one of the dudes that she dated before her and I got together was like obsessed with this song. There were two things he loved the band tool and Idiotech by Radiohead. And she nowadays just cannot hear those without losing her mind. And he was one of those guys from what I understand that just like used to blare this out of his apartment and dorm just constantly. And you and I both know that person. I mean, there was something about this song that for whatever reason, people just love. There sure was young white college males (laughs) who who resonated with it. And I just, dude, like I don't get it. I mean, again, like, it's this incredibly repetitive backbeat with this sort of, you know, jamming over the top of it. And Tom York is just sort of wailing over the top. I mean, your vocals are better than his. So I don't, what, what is the deal with Idiotech and why, why, why did this connect so strongly with some listeners? I have no idea that one of my, one of my uh, best friends, actually went, one of my roommates in college was, he was one of those guys. He just, this song just like sent him into a frenzy and I never got it. And I still don't, 
I still don't. Th- this track actually, it's it's so funny, you know, you led with, you know, y- hearing this out of blaring out of apartment porches and things, because I mean it's so true. This song more than the others, I've really strived to try and understand. I mean, I've gone back and just listened to the to Idiotech just by itself. It's like, okay, I gotta be missing something here. What part of this am I not getting? I still got nothing. I'm still coming up empty. It's not, I, I guess the beat, the uniqueness at the time, um, the, the sort of, there is sort of a chugging, charging nature to it that may appeal to some people. I mean, I'm trying Ringo. I'm trying real hard Ringo here to, to, <laughs> to kind of understand it. But yeah, man, there were some, some people that just, Something about it. And hey, listen, they're probably the same people that would listen to Cassandra Gemini and look at me and be like, you like this? You know, so so to each their own, right? And and certainly not meaning to to knock anybody's taste, but it is so it's one of the things that makes music fascinating as an art form, is uh there are things that just from a sensory standpoint and just to somebody's ear, there's one thing that, you know, riles them up. And same person with honestly, in some cases, similar tastes can be sitting there going, what the hell's with them? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was always one of those songs where if you ever needed a song to try and make, you know, those who think that black music is better than white music, give them some ammo (laughs) to support that cause. This would be one of those songs (laughs) because this is one of those tunes where all, you know, all of the uh, the black kids in the dorm were listening, going, "What in the hell is wrong with all those white people? You know what? I'm what in God's green earth are they listening to? <laughs> yeah, <You totally>. <laughs> and completely understand. Totally right. Totally right. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, let let's start to bring this album to a close with a, again a track with some potential, but just not sure it got where it needed to get. And that is number nine, Morning Bell. I got to say something, Nub, um, and I know that you've touched on before with the um, late 90s, early 2000s records that we've done on the old podcast here, previous episodes. You've talked about the loudness wars. This album is really, and I'm not really even, I haven't really realized it until right now, kind of doing the tracks. It's a, it's an incredibly loud, must have been a very heavily mastered album. It's, it's hot. Yeah, the mastering in this one definitely goes to 11. I mean, this is the year 2000. It's right in the midst of the Loudness Wars, and Chris Blair did the mastering on it. And This song plays an interesting role with me as a drummer. I don't know if you've ever noticed, he probably not, because usually when we get together and rehearse, you know, we're kind of both just warming up in our respective ways. But every every person has, I think, a thing they do when they pick up their instrument. Like <laughs> yeah, you have totally. certain guitar riffs that you yeah. just play every time yeah. you oh, yeah. pick it up. And this is one of those drum riffs uh, that, you know, it's one of those riffs that like is always playing in my head. And I usually sit behind a kit and play that a little bit to warm up. Ah, it, interesting. It, it interesting. is a very catchy, interesting drum pattern. The problem is, is that, you know, like everything on Kid Ape just becomes unbelievably repetitive. 
you know, never really goes into another place. And again, Morning Bells, just like what we talked about, the national anthem, you know, it starts off with some promise, but just never really goes to a place that captivates your interest unless you're like a Kid A guy, you know, and I guess then you think it's genius. But just from a songwriting perspective, I mean, it just never really takes off. It's like a failure to launch sort of album, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. You know, um, hey, but by the... (laughs) By the time you get to this point in the record, I mean, it's kind of like, why stop now? You know, um, and, you know, then we get to the closer here, track 10. That's right. And close it up with track 10 of 10, which is motion picture soundtrack. I don't have a harp, otherwise I'd play the harp over this. <laughs> I, dude, I still like our kid A better than the actual kid A. I th- I really- <laughs> it's like Kid B. We'll make Kid B. <laughs> kid B. Two tunes in an album. Our, our debut record under that name, we could call it Kid B. <laughs> Just a bunch of junk with, you know, some occasional whining over it. You know, you could have at least closed the album on a high note something you know remember how okay computer closed the bends closed with street spirit fade out which you know i would say trademark album closer kid a closes with this sort of rambling thing called motion picture soundtrack yeah i mean you're pretty confused up to that point so you might as well you know you know again this is one where a lot of acclaim on this song you know a lot of people Maybe that's because it's long. Sometimes songs are long and therefore people think they're really good, really experimental. But uh, motion picture soundtrack. Yeah, that's. I don't know. At least it's fitting. At least it's fitting and appropriate. I'll tell you, it's a it's a motion picture soundtrack. All right. To a shit movie. Yeah, you know, you that was good. And and I I forgot uh back if we could just go back to track four for a second, uh how to disappear completely. I was gonna say, I wish this song would disappear completely. <laughs> exactly. All right, T, we've made it through kid A. So let's do a little bit of our analysis here. So T, does kid A matter? It matters a ton. Yeah. It does. Even if you don't like it, this was super experimental, super important. It introduced a lot of people to a different sort of post-proggy, you know, experimental, rocky, um, sort of an electronic. Uh, I mean, there were a lot of people out there. You know, I think the white college kids included that we discussed that hadn't heard this type of thing before. So it introduced a lot of people at a time where they were probably willing to go for the ride a little bit with Radiohead. 
because of the way that band, I mean, people got to remember this band was so acclaimed. I mean, they were darlings at the time. It was like, man, these guys are just so ahead of the, ahead of the game. And you know, they're brilliant. And, um, uh, Rolling Stone has their hindsight critique. You really don't hear a lot of people in, in sort of modern day, uh, sort of propping Radiohead up the way they did at the time. And it makes you wonder if maybe this stuff didn't age even to big fans, you know, even to people who love Kid A, you know, would they pop it in today and, and feel it the same way? You know, like we would some of our favorite albums from way, way back when my guess would be no. So I don't think that it's aged well, but I do think it was tremendously important for a band that was this commercial and this mainstream and this popular to come out and do something like this. So props for the approach and props for the uniqueness and to an extent props for kind of not giving a shit. Cause that's a lot of what's intertwined here. Um, now I feel it to be somewhat ingenuine and I feel it to be, uh, just not particularly great, but oh yeah, it, this mattered a lot. This mattered a lot at the time. How about you? What do you think, buddy? I think you need to really look at what came after to make that determination. So, you know, like I mentioned earlier for David Bowie's low, you know, without low, you probably don't have scary monsters. You probably don't have let's dance. You probably don't have Earthling, and you don't have a career that went well into the 2000s. The appreciation for an experimental album, I think, comes from how did it set up that artist for longevity? The problem with Radiohead is that they did Kid A. I think they made a solid album with Hail to the Thief, but nothing else after that has really been that important. I mean, the last album, A Moon Shaped Pool, you know, a lot of people love it. I thought it was fine, whatever. Um, in rainbows, I thought it was disappointing. Uh, it was free though. So at least it was free. <laughs> right, it was free. Well, all that being said, I do agree with you. You have to respect the fact that they didn't just keep doing what they were doing. And I, I like that. That's true art. That's true progress. Props to them. But you still got to be good. Right? And, and the argument is, you know, is this album quality enough to be experimental and something that should still be cherished. And we'll get to that right now. We get to our final cut. So T, let's see. Is Kid A on the turntable? Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust? Or is it in the for sale bin? What do you think, T? Oh, folks, now he's really out now. I don't know if I can I don't know if I can wake him up at this point. Right. T, wake up. T. Oh, yep. Hey. Oh, T. hey, how's it going? What are, we on the we we in doing uh what's in your head or are we doing uh round and round? What are we doing? What are we doing? Oh, Sorry, I fell asleep. Oh boy. You were really out there. T, we're doing the final cut. Where do you have kid A? Uh for sale, Ben. And you know, I wanted I really wanted to like surprise everybody. And I really wanted to like pull a radio head and be like, ha ha. I'm putting it on the turntable because I see the genius, but I don't, I've tried, I've tried time and time again. There's no reason for me 
to have this record in the collection, even if I had a lot of respect for it, which I actually don't, because I do think it was sort of disingenuous the way it was composed and executed and released. Like they were trying to make a statement rather than trying to make something good. And the lack of thoughtfulness that really shines through to me that I talked about earlier. Um, you know, I even, I even wanted to maybe give it collecting dust just because of the fact that I really do think it mattered, you know, as I explained during the, does it matter phase, but ultimately, man, it's just not very good. Does nothing for me. I think it was kind of pretentious and kind of whiny. And uh, first time in a while, I'm putting it uh, in the for sale bin. How about you, Nub? Any surprises in your final cut? What do you got, buddy? This one's going in the for sale bin for me too, T. I just oh, give it a fair, give it a real fair shake. Absolutely, absolutely did. Know? Yes. And I mean, it is a, a extraordinary that it's been 21 years since this album came out. So really did want to revisit it. And again, I've, I've discovered a lot of different things in that, in that meantime that might support enjoying Kid A. But in the end, you still got to have either thoughtful, captivating songs, or you've got to have melodies that can bring a listener in, even if they're not really song oriented. And again, we've mentioned countless artists tonight that I know you and I both connect and relate with that do the latter. And this just does not. It's for Sylvan all the way. There's two or three moments on it that kind of try and get there. But yeah, see, it's just in the end, you know, let's keep it simple. Just not good. All right, T. Well, let's bring episode 32 to a close with how we always bring things to a close. Even though we're both taking an album to the for sale bin, that doesn't mean we can't take the chance right now to talk about what is in our heads. T, what's in your head? T, what's in your head? The first is Ozzy Osbourne, shot in the dark. One step away, away from, from you. Well, that feels good after Kid A, doesn't it? Oh. Yeah, actually, it really does. That feels good. It's, it's like, uh, I, I feel sort of like I bathe yeah. in rock and roll. Yeah, baby. Uh, shot in the dark. Uh, probably, probably besides old, old LA Tonight, my favorite Ozzy song. Mm. Hey, there'd be no shame in that, buddy. I love Shot in the yeah, Dark. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, totally. Uh, the second, I'm going to shout out my buddy, Sean over at Celine music and vinyl. I stopped by yesterday and he had had his little vinyl display going, selling some wax. And I saw a couple of rat records and I said, Oh, where'd you get those rat records? You're going to sell those. And he said, yeah, your twin brother gave those to me to sell. I was like, Oh, I don't know if I should be happy because he might make a buck or pissed off because he's selling his rat catalog so explain (laughs) yourself please well remember i am uh helping first of all celine music and vinyl is one of the up-and-coming record shops in our area so everyone should check it out so remember that just because i i'm I'm working with sean on his vinyl collection right and so just because i take something just because i take something there does not mean it's from okay fair enough okay so we're building his collection so I, I still have my Rat records and probably okay. so. Well, great band. I actually really think that Rat is one of the best within that 
80s hair metal type genre. And uh, Way Cool Jr. is the track, which is a, a phenomenal song from that time. You know, you got blues, you got a shuffle, you got like a saxophone, I think, at the end, right? Um, great video. So, yeah, I actually really think Way Cool Jr. is a pretty amazing song from that era. That hey, T, went- back me up on this. I, I don't know if you've ever thought this too, but the the famous SNL skit, Schmidt's Gay, mm-hmm. if Beautiful Girls by Van Halen was the perfect song for it, but if that wouldn't have worked out, I think Way Cool Jr. would have been a, a good song. Yeah, for the, the yeah I think gay. that's yeah. for, for the Schmidt's Gay spot. I, I, yeah, I, I think that would have worked. Uh, but I mean, you know, Beautiful Girls is just perfect. Yeah, I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's just so ideal. Good. Yeah. Ideal. Yeah. Uh, you guys look like you need to get wet. You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, and then the third is by a great band uh, from the uh, 90s called Raging Slab. And a little song that Nubs introduced me to many years ago called Lynn, which is a very pretty violin driven, very, very well sung, rather beautiful song by Raging Slab. Lynn, L-Y-N-N-E. So, Should have been a huge hit. I don't know if you remember yeah. The yeah. first time we saw Lenny Kravitz, Raging Slab opened, yeah. and they played Lynn with the they violins, did. and it's a, it's a yeah, it was really song. cool live. It was like, well, what are these guys? Because they they all looked like a bunch of like a bunch of tree hugging hippies out there, you know. They were, I assume, from the south, very southern fried type band, and they all brought out these uh, violins and violas, and they played this really pretty song, and it was Lynn. So check it out if you never heard it. Nubs, what is in your head, Buckaroo? First for me is the opening track and the first time you ever heard David Coverdale lead singing for Deep Purple. And that is the song Burn off of the album Burn with, to me, one of the great riffs in rock and roll history. Deep Purple had a lot of good riffs, but a lot of people know Smoke on the Water, Women from Tokyo, great songs, but Burn, powerful, energetic riff. And David Coverdale, it's the first time you ever hear his voice on a Deep Purple album. So. I've been digging burn. Also, uh, do you know Meshuggah T? This is like the, it's, you know, the metal band Meshuggah. Have you heard them? Heard of them. Yeah, you got to get into Meshuggah. Anybody should. This is the kind of dual guitar attack, a lot of mathy stuff. Oh, actually the aforementioned Sean has mentioned them. He's a big fan. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Super important band. And Frederick Thorndall, who is one of the guitarists in Meshuggah is, is a guy who went on to do some cool things. He he made Soul Niger within the Frederick Thorndall's uh, special effects solo project. But Do Not Look Down, which is one of my favorite Meshuggah tracks. Everyone should download it. It's a real jam. This is one that you want on your rotation for sure. And then lastly would be the song Diesel Power from The Prodigy. Yeah, great song. Great yeah. song. That was on our that was on our basketball, our varsity basketball warm-up tape. Diesel Power. Great song. Nothing says 1997 like diesel power. So we, you know, we're, we're right back to where we started talking about the year 1997. So there you go. Well, T, what do you think? Should we, what's going to be the first thing you listen to after diving into Kid A? We, we kind of touched on it there when we did a little Ozzy, but don't you just feel right now like you want to just go listen to something like sort of normal? You know, I actually really want to listen to the Benz. I think I'll probably listen to the Benz because. A little bit, be a little bit of a cleansing, and it'll remind you that I mean, listen, there's a reason why this band was acclaimed. I mean, they they deserve to be. They did some really amazing work there on their second and third record, leading up to Kid A. And like I said, important, it mattered. 
it was unique. Um, but you know, I think that certainly n- neither you or I have a bad taste in our mouth about Radiohead. Cause if you go back and you go back and plow through the bends or plow through okay computer, you get a real understanding of why this album was so hyped and, uh, why this band was so acclaimed. They, they deserved to be at the time. Thank you for tuning in to episode 32 here on Two Twins in an Album. Why don't you give us a live, just, you know, we usually play the song to close it out, but, what, you know, since you've got the the keyboard, why don't you do, you want to do a little unplugged for us? Absolutely. Or? I think okay. so. Here we go. Let's have it. Okay. Hey, we'll see you next week, right? Episode, uh, what is it, 33, Nub? Next week will be episode 33 here on Two Twins and an Album. Now, this is kind of like, a, remember we were at that event, it was like 4th of July or something in Detroit, yeah. and uh, Lee Greenwood rolled in and played the, uh, yeah. God Save the God Bless the USA song, just him yeah. and a keyboard. This is kind of like that right yes. now. Yeah, I feel like we're getting a very, very special performance right very now. Very intimate. So. Very intimate. Yeah. All right, ready? Right, here we go. Ready, T? Two tweens and an album. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.